Sunday, you look good? Wow, very bright colors. This, my friends, is called a new shirt. See it? Grace came home with four of them, and this was the only one that reached down to my hands, and I said, all right, I'll wear it. It's a good one. Today is the last sermon that we're preaching through what we've called Seven Mile Road, a field guide. We're working on what does it mean to be Jesus's people together. We have swum in a speech that was given by a pastor in the biblical book of Acts, where he rewinds for them what it looked like to plant and build a strong church. And we've been saying, whatever that looked like, can we do that here? Today is the last big idea in this whole series of preaching, and it is the linchpin that binds everything else that we have said together. In fact, without this truth anchored deeply in your soul, everything else we have said would be a waste of time. You know, Shakespeare, sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what the last four months would be, a bunch of sounds coming from a pastor's mouth, but not signifying anything if we don't get this deep. And here's the big idea that we're working together. Without the work of the Spirit, we're dead. But with the Spirit, look out. Without the work of the Spirit, we're dead. But with the Spirit, look out. All right, my job is really to make the one text of Scripture come alive to you today. I want to start with a a simple story. If you live in Massachusetts, you know that there are two kind of vacationers, right? What are they? There's the kind who go up to New Hampshire and the kind who go down the Cape. All right, talk to me about New Hampshire. What represents a New Hampshire summer vacation? Go. Tent hiking Camp Lake. That is good. I also thought uh, Led Zeppelin, six packs, (laughs) shotguns, live free or die. All right, that's our New Hampshire vacationers. What represents a vacation down at the Cape? Go. Sharks, beaches. You're talking all at the same time. I need a Costco. Yes, lobster fests, clam bakes. I also thought of James Taylor and white wine and NPR. No? All right. For about six or seven years in a row when our kids were a little smaller, the Cruz family would get our summer Sabbath, our summer vacation, and we would go to we would go to the Cape. Not for the wine or the James Taylor, because I did not marry a tents, camping, woods, hot dogs kind of gal. I married a house with an outdoor shower, let's go down to the beach type of girl. Uh, we would go to the same place every time. We would say the same house because we would leave this place cleaner than when we found it. And the woman who rented us the house loved having uh, Grace Cruz renting from her because she got a free week without having to do any cleaning costs. One year when our kids were smaller, we bought kites and we said, we are going to fly some kites. I 
was ready to do this. We watched some YouTube videos of how to get a kite up in the air. I read every single word on the directions of how to put the kite together properly. Julia, Callie, Brandon, we went down to a field. I put the kite on the ground like you're supposed to. I stretched the string out exactly as far as it was supposed to be. I turned and pivoted. I had it in my hand the right way, and I ran. And I looked behind me, and this kite was just bumping and dragging through the grass. If you're a dad, when your little girls give you that look like, wait a minute, I thought you were dad and you could do anything. Why can't you get this kite off the ground? I had that moment. Tried it again, tried it again, nothing. I said, hey, why don't we just wait and we'll try this down at the beach tonight. Dusk, minivan, kites, kids, ocean. Same dad, same kite. Stretched it out to the proper distance turned and pivoted, ran with it. Do you know what happened? That kite took off like a rocket, nearly tore my arm out of my shoulder. I'm 6'3", 215, and I went up off the ground a little bit. My hand was burning trying to let the kite string out fast enough. What happened there? Same preparation, same technology, same technique, same kite, what was the difference? Wind. There was no wind in that field in the middle of the hot summer day, dead. But down at the ocean, late in the day, have you been there? Gale force winds. It is the same thing with the gospel life and our work together as a church, without the presence and the grace and the power of the Spirit, nothing. But with the Spirit, look out. All right, let's work some Bible on this so I can show you why we believe this to be true. Your Bible is explicit that we are 100% dependent on the presence, the grace, and the power of the Spirit for any gospel good to happen. This is true of what we call our salvation, our new birth, coming alive to the beauty of the gospel. This is how Paul says it. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Spirit. Okay, you have to let this sink into your soul this morning. It's phrased in the negative on purpose. We're feeling the negative first together. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the power of the Spirit. When he writes, say, Jesus is Lord, he's not talking about a robotic rote quoting of those three words. You could put a gun to someone's head and get them to say, yeah, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Put the gun down. You could train a one-year-old to say, Jesus is Lord. You could actually train a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. Siri and Alexa can say Jesus is Lord. When he writes, say Jesus is Lord, that is shorthand for a legit, all-in, no holding back, confession, faith in Christ. This thing 
that explodes out of the soul that says, Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is good. Jesus is true. Jesus is Lord. That only happens by a miracle of the Spirit. A couple of weeks ago on our anniversary, Grace took me to spin class. You know about this? It was all right. My lungs were good. My legs were killing me. I didn't do much of that standing up part. Anyway, this country music song comes on, which usually death to me. But all I heard was these words, hallelujah, Sunday morning, all I ever needed, wanted. I started to worship Jesus at the back of the spin class because when I heard those words, my soul just connected them to Christ. I'm sure the song's about a girl. But for me, no one can say, hallelujah, Sunday morning, all I ever needed, wanted, has been found in Christ, except by the Holy Spirit. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No one ever says those words on their own. Nobody ever makes that decision on their own. No preacher, no matter how eloquent or prepared, can make that happen. No apologetics argument crafted, delivered perfectly can make that happen. No Hillsong can make that happen. No altar call gets that done in a soul. Every time this happens, it's a crazy unexpected miracle of divine grace. Now, this does not mean that the Spirit doesn't use means. Of course, He does. Your praying, our preaching, your loving, your gospeling others. They matter, but they are not sufficient on their own to do anything to save anyone. We need the gale force wind of the Spirit to see that happen. All right, hugely important. This is not just true about you believing the gospel. This is true about all of your gospel life and all of our gospel work. The Spirit doesn't just give us a jump start on the front end and get us going, and then we got this from there. We need the Spirit. If anything good is going to come from our attempt to be a church together. Here's how Jesus said it to his disciples. He said, I'm the vine. You're just branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And then the negative again. Hear this. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, again, that doesn't mean literally nothing. There are millions of people, millions, who do not have the spirit of Jesus, who do stuff, good stuff, every single day. He's talking here about gospel work. These words are said to his disciples in the context of his call for them to follow him and to make disciples. The life and the work they were called to, the life and the work that you are called to, nothing can be done without Jesus by his Spirit animating, enlivening, empowering. You are like a branch on the ground in the woods. You are like a kite in a windless field. Without the Spirit, we're dead. 
God's people have always understood this to be true intuitively, especially those called to minister the gospel to his people. Think of Moses. These are the words that he said after the people had sinned terribly, and the Lord said, hey, lead them forward. He said these words. Then Moses said to the Lord, and I picture him going, time out, time out. If your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. Everyone feel this. The humility, the desperation, the honesty in this prayer. I'm not even moving an inch if I don't know that you are with me by your spirit. How about David in the gut-wrenching prayer that he prayed after he sinned terribly against the Lord Bathsheba, Uriah, and the people? He's crying out to God for mercy, and he says these words, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. In the older covenant, the work of the Spirit is different than it is in the, in the gospel age, in the new covenant. Uh, the Spirit has now been poured out egalitarianly on all flesh, all men, and all women who believe Jesus. In the older covenant, the Spirit would come only upon those who had a special task or a special gospel work to accomplish for the Lord. For example, the king. This is why you will read about David being anointed by God for this role. And he knew it. And so when he says, you can't take your spirit from me, it's not in reference to his salvation per se, but it's in reference to his work. He knew, I am useless trying to lead or govern or serve or rule your people without your spirit. I know I've sinned terribly, but you can't take your spirit away from me. I could give you 20 more examples, but the point today is that Paul also knew this to be true. How does he end Acts 20, the text that we've been preaching through for four months? What's the last thing that happens? He's looked them in the eye. He's called them to some big gospel work. I'm leaving. You need to lead now. They were now up. Who's next? To make disciples, to love and gospel their city, to preach the gospel, to care for the saints. After all the call to action, what is the very first thing that these people do? What would your first response have been? If you are wired like me, I'm a doer, you get to work right away, right? You start planning and plotting. I'd have my list out. Here we go. There's vision to cast, strategy to form, sermons to prepare. There's people to meet and funds to raise and leaders to train. We got to get the kids' curriculum going. Somebody's got to work on this space. We need a worship leader. Let's work. That is not the first thing that they do. What is the first thing that they do? We read it before. Here it is. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and they prayed. I love this. This is a public place. 
This is the beach right by the Miletus port where Paul was getting ready to sail out. Unashamed, humble, desperate, these folks fell to their knees, said, Jesus, you've got to be with us by your spirit. We're not even going to get started if you are not with us. Now that ending, when you see it, doesn't surprise or jolt you at all because you're in church, right? And you're like, Cruz, of course they kneel down to pray. They're Christians. That's what Christians do. They pray. Yes! And I need you to feel the wildness of that today. The import of that. The unusualness of that. This is strange. You know that I've never once finished a meeting at my day job. I work in finance. Where there was a big project put before us or a a big task to be done. I've never walked out of one of those meetings and had everybody in the office throw themselves on their knees before the Lord in prayer asking for his presence, grace, and power so we could do this. Not once. Grace and I went to a wedding a couple of years ago. Just this incredibly giant endeavor before these people to try and be married joyfully, wholly, permanently. There is no wilder thing to do than to bind yourself to one person for life and have this crazy thing before you. Not one prayer prayed at this wedding, ceremony, reception. Not one turning of the heart to the Lord. We need you. Why not? We are fully modern cosmopolitan Bostonians and we have convinced ourselves that we don't need Jesus or his spirit. Come on. The best phrase that I know of that helps me capture this from my own heart because this is me first, right? For why we have such a hard time with these negative things that I've shown you. No one says Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. You can do nothing apart from me. The reason we kind of recoil at those words, the best way to say it for me is right here. We got this. Boston Strong is how you're going to hear this tomorrow, right? We got this. That's the cry of every Bostonian heart. We don't need God. We don't need Jesus. We don't need his spirit. We got this. Okay, my kids are Bostonian, four of them, born and raised. That means that they walk around this planet with this swagger like they can do anything, anything. This is a true story. My son, Matt, was five or six years old, and we were going down the block across Lebanon Street to go ride bikes in the Wyoming Cemetery. Do you know the stretch of Lebanon Street where everyone's so frustrated that they've stopped at 72 lights, and there's no lights for a quarter of a mile? And they literally put the pedal to the metal and just gassed that thing up like it's NASCAR. Okay, that was this strip right there. I'm behind him carrying the bike. He walks right out onto Lebanon Street just like this. A Honda Pilot comes bearing down on him from the north side. Five years old. This is exactly what he did. <laughs> like he was an Avenger or an X-Man or something. Just going to shoot some rocket out of his hand if they didn't stop. You feel that? That's you. 
That's me. Come on, we are educated. We are savvy. We are smart. We're accomplished. We have the internets. We've got iPhones and Viagra and Whole Foods in our city, people. We got this. We got this. Have you ever gone into Bodeborg with a group of Bostonians? When we get in there, what do we do? We don't panic. We don't sweat. We don't pray. That's for sure. We don't need to. We can figure out Bodeborg. I can figure out this mystery and get out of this room. We got this. It's the way that we live. What happens is that poison seeps its way from the world into the life of the church. And we become convinced we got this. We got this. We can lead and grow a church on our own. And we start to rely on our gifting and gimmicks and catchphrases and rhetoric and leadership podcasts, slogans, smoke, lasers, lattes. You know the whole list, right? We got this. We bounce from one conference to another just looking for that silver bullet. What is it? We spend $349 on the book and DVD set, How to Break the 200 Barrier. We got this. There's some buttons. If we just push them, we got this. We're positive that we can manufacture gospel results, sure of it. That's not how this works. We don't need more books, and we don't need more talking heads, and we don't need more conferences, and we don't need more pro tips. We need the Spirit. All right, confession. This has been one of the hardest things in the world for me, surprisingly stepping into gospel ministry, because being a pastor was not on the radar there. Um, I am totally and I got this kind of guy, especially because I love to be able to say, I did this. I got this. Watch. I did this. One of the huge joys of my life before pastoring was coaching basketball. I did this for three reasons. Number one, I loved kids. Number two, I loved basketball. Number three, I am a totally manipulative control freak who likes to force my will upon all things. I loved basketball because as the coach, I could force my will upon the game. We were losing once at Ling Classical, down by like 12, and the game is plodding along, and we're getting pounded in the half court. Time out. Yelled at a bunch of kids, and then I said, here's what we're doing. We're going full court press the whole way, the rest of the game. You better need an oxygen tank, or I'm cutting you tomorrow. Sent them back on the court. They started flying around like maniacs. What had I done? I changed the pace, the tempo of the game. Turnover, chaos, loose ball, layup, and we caught right up. 
Who did that? I did that. I changed the tempo of the game. We were at Whittier once, down by one, three, four seconds left on the clock. Time out, time out, time out. Called him in the huddle, yelled at a bunch of kids. We are running jailbreak right now. I got up my whiteboard and I wrote it perfectly. Three kids stand here, one kid stands here, hit the ball. He runs off the triple screen and breaks toward the hoop. Throw him a bounce pass, he lays it in. We win. Go do this, or I will kill you in this locker room. <laughs> one, two, three, hard work. They go out. Kid hits the ball, jailbreak. Maddie Ambrosevich catches it. Dribble, 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 layup. We win. I won't regale you with 18 more stories. But that day, I was so proud in the locker room. Why? Because I got this, and I did this. I manufactured those results with my in-game management and my whiteboard skills and my study on what to do in that situation. Coaching hoops, I got this. Then I began to pastor you people. Then I began to plan a church with you. About 18 months in, I started to realize without the supernatural grace, presence, power of the Spirit, I don't got this. I don't got this at all. I can get that kite ready. I can let out that string. I can run but I cannot make it fly an inch off the ground. The same is true for you in all of your gospel callings. First in your call to follow Jesus, to show off his glory by obeying him in all things. You don't got this. And there's all the other things that you were made for. Maybe it's a call to singleness. You don't got this. Marriage. Motherhood. Fatherhood, the vocation that the Lord has called you to in the world or ministry in the church. Apart from the Spirit, you can do nothing. Nothing. You need to own that. The flip side of this is also hinted at by Jesus when he says, but if you do abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. In other words, there's a positive side to this doctrine. It sounds like this. Without the Spirit, we're dead. But with the Spirit, all things are possible. All right, let's finish here. Today's Easter, right? Oh, man. One of the things that we remember, remember on Easter is that Jesus died. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He didn't almost die. Jesus died dead. That truth is essential, not only because it means that your sin and my sin is fully and finally paid for on the cross of Christ, but it also means that we serve a God who raises the dead. Not spiritually, not religiously, not poetically. Raises the dead, literally, physically. That's Easter. 
Here's our question. How did dead Jesus, unable to lift his head, come back to life? How did the Father raise the Son? What was the means? Was it some kind of hocus pocus? Was it some kind of technique? How did the Father raise the Son from the dead? The answer is the straight up gale force wind of the Spirit. That's how. And the resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit-empowered explosion of life, is the paradigm for all gospel living and working. All of it. Not just for your new birth, but it is true. No one in here is born again but by the power of the Spirit. And not just for your future resurrection, when your body and your soul will come together permanently and perfectly forever. But the work of the Spirit is also the linchpin for every little miracle that we need along the way that we can't get done on our own. Here's how Paul says it in Romans. This should knock you right out of your seat. He says these words. The Spirit of Him, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Does this not make you want to go fly some gospel kites right here? Does this not make you want to lean into the gospel callings on your life because you're not alone? In fact, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and is constantly working for God's glory and our joy is with you. This is wild. That doctrine is supposed to get us to say this last thing together as a church. We believe that without the work of the Spirit, we're dead. But, 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 there's a big but here. But with the Spirit, look out. This doctrine should foster humility in you, right? In God's economy, who are you? Are you the super smart coach who called the right play to win the game? Or are you that little scrub on the end of the bench waving his towel? Who are you? This doctrine should forge humility in every soul in this room. You don't got this, but Jesus by his spirit does. It's also supposed to foster patience in you. Patience in you. Jesus says that the wind blows where it wants, when it wants, and nobody has the clue or can control that right there. Sometimes we will be doing our work, loving each other, preaching the gospel, living in community, and we won't see massive, explosive, kite-flying results. It's okay. Wait on the Lord. You can't make it happen anyway, but He knows what's going on. Wait on Him. Wait on Him. Wait on Him. And that kite will soar. It teaches us patience. And the last thing, it teaches us expectancy. It is supposed to foster in you an energetic, optimistic excitement about what in the world might go down because we are not in this alone. The ceiling of this church is not the gifting and the effort and the hustle that we bring to it. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is with us. 
Let's pray together. Father, I pray that our hearts would get right around this doctrine. If anybody in this room has never been born again, never experienced just their, their soul coming alive to God, their sins being forgiven because of Christ, the Spirit giving meaning, eternal meaning to their life right now. I pray that you would gale force wind new birth in this room. Father, we also freely confess that we don't got this. The stuff that you have called us to cannot be done merely through human effort. We need a work of the Spirit. So teach us to pray. Teach us to believe. Teach us to sing. And teach us to wave our towels on the end of the bench when you get to work convicting of sin, healing marriages, changing minds, forging new life. Would you come and do it, Spirit, this year at Seven Mile, I pray. Amen.